Heavenly Father, thank you so much again that we can come and not just blindly believe in a resurrection, but to have the clear record of your written word. And even now, as we look into Paul's teaching, your teaching through the Apostle Paul, of the importance of the resurrection, even using a particular situation in the Church of Corinth to teach us so much of the values and riches of the reality of the resurrection. May we learn, may we grow, may we have a deeper understanding and appreciation of who you are, what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you turn there, let me give you a little bit of background of what we are looking at and what we are seeing. Paul is writing to the believers in a city by the name of Corinth, the church at Corinth. And one of the main reasons he is writing to them is because they have some errors. Errors not only in their doctrine and theology, as we will see this morning, but also errors in how they are living out the doctrine that they do know. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what we encounter is Paul addressing one of the several errors that he addresses in 1 Corinthians. This particular error that he is addressing, that the Corinthians believe, is that there is no resurrection of dead human beings. Now they believe that there is a resurrection or there was a resurrection of Jesus Christ, otherwise they would not be saved. They don't believe, however, that there is a resurrection of all people. And that is the context of what Paul is saying. And I want to read for you verses 1 through 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I pre- preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised, and on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is context. We're not going to unpack these first 11 verses, but I wanted you to see them to give you an introduction to the portion of the book, the letter, in which Paul starts addressing the resurrection. And what we have seen is 
Paul clearly says that they are believers, that they are saved, indeed, if they hold fast to the word that he preached to them. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, incidentally, I've talked to you before, and this is a side note, that you should always be able to have prepared, be able to preach the gospel depending on how much time you have. And you should have a 30-second gospel presentation in which if you are just greeting a friend on the street or you just have a short time with someone in BART or at a bus station or something like that, a checkout stand at the grocery store, you need to be able to preach the gospel in 30 seconds. And you can if you understand what we have been saying over the past several weeks in regards to true ministry and true evangelism, which is, Only the gospel saves, and so that's all you need to say. I'm saying all of that because if you only have four seconds to preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, if you recite it, then that individual has heard the gospel. But what is the gospel? The gospel is that men and women were created by God and that we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory or the perfection of God. God created mankind. And as such, he has the right to tell his creation how he wants them to live. And when they do not live that way, they have violated his law. They have violated his will, his desire. It is not unlike violating any law in our city or country or state or county. You break the law because the powers that be have created those laws for us to abide by. Now, here's the reality. Whether it is a huge crime in the eyes of society that is punishable by imprisonment or even a life sentence or the death penalty, Or if it is something small, remember, we're talking about God's rules, not the rules of the U.S. government. And so he says, even being impatient, for example, even telling a small lie, even getting angry at someone, even if that anger did not flesh out in saying anything negative or hurting anyone, just even in your own mind, if you were angry, That is sin. And those are just some small examples to prove the point that even a small so-called infraction of God's rules, God's law, God's desires is considered a breaking of that rule, which we call sin. And like when we break the laws of any land, when we break the laws of God, when we sin, there must be a punishment. Because of the holiness and greatness and authority of God as God and as our creator, when you break those laws, it is not just a fine, it is not just a ticket, it is not just imprisonment. And I say this uh, not jokingly, it is not just physical death. It is spiritual death. It is an eternity in hell. This is not just some random willy-nilly choice of God. It is what all men have earned by their behavior, by their thinking, by their thoughts. We have earned hell. We have not fallen into it. It's not just bad luck. Because of our sin, we have earned an eternity eternity in hell. Hell does not end. 
your soul is not snuffed out after a thousand years of punishment and torment, and then you no longer exist. It is eternal. That's the problem. But there is a solution. And the solution is what we are and have been celebrating all this weekend. We cannot pay for our sins on our own. We are just simply too wicked. We are too frail. We're too fragile. We are just unable to save ourselves. It is not a relationship like maybe some of your human relationships where you can just apologize and make amends and everything is back to normal. That only works when there are two equals, man and man, woman and woman, co-worker and co-worker. That simply does not work when the one who has offended is man and the one who has been offended is a holy and righteous God. There is nothing we can do despite what people may tell you, despite what even your religious leaders may tell you. You are completely unable to bridge the gap between you and God, which was created by your sin. You can't do it. You may be more ethical than other people. You may be better than other people. You may do more good deeds than other people. But all that means is you can jump further than the other person, so to speak, but you still fall into that ditch. It matters not if we were all standing on the shores of the Pacific Ocean on the border of California. And we say, let's see who can jump all the way to the island of Hawaii. Some may jump further than others. Some may be professional athletes. Some may have won gold medals in that very event. And they will jump so far that we are blown away, but nobody will make it to the island. That is just a a simple illustration of how far we are from God. No matter how far you jump, in other words, no matter how good you do, you can't make it to God. So if none of us can pay the penalty for our own sin, what do we do? Is there really a heaven and are people there? Yes, there is, and yes, there are, because Jesus Christ came. Why could Jesus Christ pay the penalty for us, not just for your sin, but my sin, but the sins of the world, only active if you put your faith in Christ? How could he do it, but no other man could? Isn't it true that Jesus Christ was a 100% human being? Absolutely, that's how he could die a physical death. That's how he could bleed. But what you under need to understand is that he is the son of God. Not just a fully human being and only a human being that God deemed the son of God, but son of God in the ancient Greek sense of the word that he was equal with God the Father. Jesus Christ lived, has lived eternally. Jesus Christ was in heaven. He chose to set aside his powers as God, to be born as a human being. This was not some sort of uh, mystical sci-fi thing. He was a 100% human being. The Virgin Mary gave birth to him the way 
many of you gave birth to your children. He cried. He bled. He had to eat. He had to use the bathroom. He felt physical pain. And all of those things, except without sin, he dealt with as he grew up as a human being. So in addition to 100% man, he was also 100% God. And so what you have in the life of Jesus Christ, though we just get a glimpse, a fraction of his physical life do we read about in the scriptures. He lived a life like you and I, but sinless. But like you and I in the sense that he was still tempted. In fact, there's a period of his life that he was tempted all alone by Satan himself. Even in the weakness of his flesh, he did not give in to temptation. Tempted, yes. Sinning, never. And so he lived for 30, 33, 35 years. We don't know exactly for sure, but around 30-something years. And never once, even as a child, did he sin, even though he was tempted to. Even though it was very hard not to sin as it is for you and I. And then, though he committed no crime in the eyes of God, and though he committed no crime in the eyes of the Romans, he was crucified on the cross. A lot of times people ask, who was responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? This is a debate that has raged on for, well, 2,000 years since Jesus was crucified. And the two main culprits and where the big debate lies is, was it the Romans Or was it the Jews? Yes, the Jews pushed the Romans to crucify. Yes, the Jews orchestrated it. They wanted it. They wanted him dead. But ultimately, the power was in the Romans. It was the Romans who actually made the decision. It was the Romans who nailed him to the cross. It was an instrument of death for the Romans. So who was it? The Jews or the Romans? It does not matter because the true answer is God killed Jesus God put Jesus on the cross. Why? Because though Jesus lived a perfect life that God demands and expects of us, that wasn't enough. He had to pay the penalty for our sins. And that is what the crucifixion was. Jesus Christ died for your sins, for my sins. So why today? Why resurrection? Why resurrection Sunday? Why is it so important that Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, if he was crucified and died, then half of what I just said would not be true if he was not resurrected. In other words, he was not God if he was not resurrected. He would not be alive right now. My prayers this morning would be to nobody. Nobody's listening except for you, and there's really nothing you can do about what I ask. But the reality is, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, To prove, or not really to prove, we say that, but because he is God. And that does prove that he indeed is God. And so how do we know he was victorious over death? How do we know that he was victorious over sin? Because the wages of sin is death. But he did not stay dead. He was raised by the Father, proving that everything that he died for, everything that he lived for, everything that was prophesied, everything that was promised, everything that I just explained, is, was, and forevermore will be true. 
See, it is so important that, to know and to recognize that Jesus Christ died for your sins. But without the resurrection, all of it is just myth. It's fake. It's lies. It's not real. So that is why a lot of times you will find people who are trying to debate the scriptures. They won't necessarily debate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They know these things happened. They have records of very, very accurate events occurring. But where they hit the most in trying to disprove the scriptures is the resurrection. Because even they know, therein lies the miracle, therein lies the victory, therein lies the living and true God. So the question for us this morning is, what if the resurrection did not occur? What if someone today, their theology says, there is no resurrection? Their doctrine denies the resurrection as fact. What would that mean for us? And the Apostle Paul addresses it in that way because that's exactly what the Corinthians were thinking and believing, that there was no resurrection. Now, I said earlier that they believed there was no resurrection of man. But Paul, as we'll see in a minute, makes the argument that if there, was, there is no resurrection of man, then there was also no resurrection of Jesus Christ because resurrection means resurrection. And so this morning, I want to give you eight ramifications of a rejected resurrection. Eight ramifications of a rejected resurrection. In other words, what would be the outcomes, what would be the ramifications if indeed the resurrection did not happen or Perhaps more practically, what it would mean for you if you did not believe in the resurrection. And I think as we go through this passage, you will come to agree with me that it's not just about the second member of the Trinity is not in heaven or something like that. There are ramifications that spread throughout almost every aspect of our faith. So look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Eight ramifications of a rejected resurrection. The first is that our faith is empty. If there is no resurrection, then our faith is empty. Look at verses 12 through 14. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. And so you see the connection, the logical sequence that Paul makes there that I mentioned to you earlier. People are saying that the Corinthians are saying people will not be raised. Paul says if people will not be raised to live in the uh, ultimately Unbelievers raised for judgment, and then believers raised also for a form of judgment, but to live eternally in a physical body in the new heavens and the new earth. If that does not happen, if there is no resurrection of the dead in general, then there is no resurrection, or there was no resurrection of the dead Messiah. And if that is the case, 
If Christ has not been raised, then he says our preaching is vain, literally empty, useless, foolish, without purpose. He is saying we have been preaching the gospel and it's vain, it's empty, because what we are preaching is not real. And in the same way, our response to the preaching of the gospel message is also vain. And so it's not enough to say, yeah, I believe Jesus was sent by God. He lived a holy life on my behalf and he died for my sins. He died for my sins. He bled and died for my sins. Just there, if we were to stop there, your faith is useless. Your faith is in a a, a person that died on a cross whose remains had become dust to dust long ago. Decades, centuries ago. Couldn't even find the bones anymore. And so this is why Paul says it is so important to understand that resurrection is real. Okay? There is no partial faith. There isn't, I just believe in these first things because, you know, people have said, archaeologists and historians have said, yes, there was a man named Jesus Christ who died, and I believe he died for my sins but I just don't believe he was raised from the dead because that's just not possible. I just don't see that happening. Then your faith is not the Christian faith. Your God is not the God of the Bible. Your faith is absolutely useless. It's like I said a few weeks ago. Anything added or taken away from the scriptures and specifically the gospel message makes your version of the gospel another gospel. In other words, a myth a lie, a fairy tale, a fantasy. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Jesus Christ was 100% human. Jesus Christ was 100% God, and he died for my sins but was not resurrected. Chalk it up to Bigfoot and the unicorns, but more damning. The resurrection is so important that your entire life of the Christian faith is absolutely useless. Can I give you a second ramification of a rejected resurrection? Secondly, if the resurrection never occurred, then the gospel slanders God. You heard that right. If there is no resurrection, then the gospel we are preaching slanders God. Look at verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. See, I hope I don't lose your confusion here, but this kind of turns it all around. If indeed, hypothetically, the resurrection did not occur, but we are preaching a resurrection then our gospel is actually the myth. The resurrection is the myth and therefore slanders God. Now, in truth, in the real world, like I said a minute ago, when we add to the gospel or take it away, that becomes the myth. And what Paul is saying here is, well, then if there is no resurrection, then actually preaching the resurrection, that's the myth. But we know, indeed, there was a resurrection. And if there was no resurrection, then 
Every time someone has shared the gospel with you, that preacher has lied to you. For however many years you've been attending grace, I have been lying to you. Every Resurrection Sunday that you have celebrated as a believer or have heard the real meaning from a believer before you were saved, you have been lied to. And that person is not just lying to you, he's lying about God, very God, the very definition of truth. And therefore, if there is no resurrection, we have been slandering our Creator by saying there was a resurrection. Bearing false witness. Hey, we've, we've talked about this word earlier in 1 Corinthians. I don't know as, uh, as much as, as some of our lawyers do in our church, obviously. But if you are called to be a witness in a witness stand, and you willingly lie, if you don't tell the truth, and you say, yeah, I, I saw him, he was holding the knife, when in reality you know he wasn't holding a knife. You're in big trouble. You are now the criminal. You are slandering the defendant. And so, in the same way, if there was no resurrection, the gospel slanders God. Thirdly, if there is no resurrection, all are condemned. All are condemned. Not just the unbeliever, but everyone. Look at verses 16 through 18. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So again, it's not enough that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He must have been raised. Otherwise, we are still in our sins. We have not been forgiven. Why? It goes back to what I said earlier. How can you be forgiven by someone who's dead? He just, if he wasn't raised from the dead, he just claimed to be able to forgive sins. But the fact that he died and never rose again proved that he actually was not God and did not have the power to forgive sins because only God has the power to forgive sins. But the resurrection shows that we are no longer in our sins. And he goes on in verse 18 to say those who have fallen asleep, that's just another way of saying those who have died. Believers who have died in Christ, he says, if there's no resurrection, have perished. And that's key. If there is no resurrection, even those who have died in Christ, he says, having put their faith in Christ, they have perished. They're in hell. All Christians, all followers of Christ, if there is no resurrection, go to hell. Are condemned. That's serious stuff. We're still in our sins. We have never been forgiven. And so praise God, there is indeed a resurrection. Number four. The fourth ramification of a rejected resurrection. Christians are pathetic. Christians are pathetic. Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I say Christians are pathetic, not in the insulting way, condescending use of the word, right? Oh man, look at that guy, he's so pathetic. No, but in the truest sense of the English word, we are truly pathetic. 
we are truly deserving of and worthy of the pity of others. And notice what Paul says. We are most to be pitied because we are following a fairy tale. We have given our lives to a fairy tale. Nobody else takes the top seat of being pathetic, of being pitied by the entire world. Why? Consider all that Christianity has done, Christians have done in the name of the Lord. Not only in your life, but even in movements and in the lives of individuals who because of their faith have literally changed the world, changed their cultures, changed society, saved lives. The daily sacrifices you make, the rejection of the pleasures of the world, the various forms of asceticism, the trillions of dollars given away to build the church, to support missionaries, to do good work. All of that, what a waste. How pathetic. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, because there is no resurrection, we are of all men most to be pitied. It's kind of like the unbelief of those who were mocking Noah as he built the ark. Drinking, having fun, sleeping around. Noah, you're building a boat. How pathetic. How sad. Little did they know he wasn't pathetic because what he said would happen is true. And we are not pathetic. Though they may think we are, we are not truly deserving of their pity because we are the most to be envied because of our eternal life, because the resurrection is in fact real. On a side note, and again, not using the condescending connotation of the word, but in genuinely asking you to have compassion, not anger, not frustration, not judgmental attitudes, but those following false religions, they deserve our pity. They are pathetic. We must feel sorry for them, not just emotionally, but in truth and delivering them the gospel message. Well, fifthly, the fifth ramification of a rejected resurrection, life is not eternal. Life is not eternal. Look at verses 20 through 23. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits or the first to come of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. You understand that when you physically die, your body stays here. Your relatives will bury your body, they will cremate your body, whatever it may be. And our souls, our spirits, they go to heaven. What you need to understand that there are what we call end times. There's a sequence of events in which Jesus Christ returns to rule as king. And in that, ultimately, he will hand over this kingdom to God the Father 
And then the world, which is stained with sin. Understand that at the fall in Genesis, it wasn't just mankind that was affected by sin. It was mankind, human beings, that had the deepest consequences of sin. They were, in fact, the sinners. And the consequences were the deepest and the broadest, the widest, because mankind is the height of God's creation and was created and called in part to rule over creation. But understand that in sin, all of creation was affected. Every molecule, every tree, every insect, every animal in the animal kingdom, all of them. And I'm not just talking about the enmity between man and animal. Right? In the garden, animals were not to be feared. They didn't fear humans. We didn't fear them. There was no death up to a certain point. But now we are scared of animals. There are certain animals that if we come across, we do not get near because they could attack us. They could hurt us. They could kill us. All of this is part of the fall. But it's not just that enmity. Even the very DNA within the created universe has been affected by the fall. And so though Christ will come in the end of days to rule and reign, that doesn't fix the problem. The only way to fix it is to destroy it and to create it anew. And contrary to what many people believe, we do not live forever in heaven. We will live forever in physical bodies in what is called the new earth which God destroys the earth as we know it, and then he rebuilds it, the closest comparison we could have to is to what he created in the first place in the Garden of Eden. And so that's where we will live. Not floating around in our spirits, but that our human bodies will be resurrected. And this is what we're talking about here and in the next point, that we will live in fleshly bodies. And this is eternity for us. And so, if there is no resurrection of the bodies, then there is no eternal life. But Christ was the first fruits or the first to come, showing us, paving the way, and being the example and proof that indeed there is a physical resurrection. Again, Jesus Christ was not just resurrected in his spirit. Remember, it wasn't that the tomb had a body and the ladies still embalmed and, and, and did what they were going to do with the spices. No, the tomb was empty because Jesus' physical body rose and walked out of that tomb. And later on, we know that they even still saw the wounds in his flesh. And so he came first showing us, proving us, paving the way that we too will be uh, encountering, experiencing one day a bodily resurrection. By the way, it is a new and eternal body. What I have just said, and this is a side note, is not a defense of, or, or a, a defense against, I should say, cremation. Because even if your whole body is buried, should the Lord tarry, and certainly over a thousand year reign, your body will disintegrate. 
And so surely it's not that body in the grave that's going to come and you're just going to walk around like a, a gross skeleton with clothes hanging off of you. It is a completely new body. It's the same thing for those who were born handicapped without certain limbs or lost their limbs in, in war or accidents or whatever it may be. They will not live in eternity in wheelchairs or as a quadriplegic or whatever it may be. They will have their full, perfect, glorified human body. Well, let's look at number six. A sixth ramification of a rejected ramif uh, resurrection is the end is unknown. The end is unknown. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so this is talking about the millennial reign or the thousand year reign of Christ in which Jesus will reign on earth before the ultimate end, before eternity comes, the new heavens and the new earth that I mentioned earlier. And as he reigns, he will subject all of his enemies under his feet. And yes, at the end of that, even the spiritual enemies, the demons and Satan himself. When that is done, he hands over to the key, the keys of the kingdom, so to speak, to God the Father, having conquered those who rebel against God. Now, very simply, Jesus can't do this if he's not alive. He can't have an earthly reign if he was not resurrected. All eschatology. All end times, same, same thing. Eschatology is just end times. All of it rests on the reality of a risen Savior. The rapture, the second coming, the millennial reign, the new heavens and the new earth, the judgment seat of Christ, the book of life, the sheep and the goats, all of it rests on Jesus Christ. It centers around the lordship and the enthronement of Jesus Christ. So none of that can happen if Jesus is still in the grave. A very significant portion of our Bible, all the end time prophecies, most of Revelation, all of that should be thrown away if Jesus was not raised. Well, number seven, death reigns forever. If there is no resurrection, death reigns forever. As so many people on earth believe, death is it. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. This is simply speaking of eternal life. Death, human death, physical death, signifies the end of human life. 50, 60, 80, 100 years whatever it may be, everybody physically dies. But death is an enemy. Death will be conquered ultimately in the end, in the end times, when God will do away with death completely. Yes, at the resurrection 2,000 years ago, he was victorious over death. But he has not abolished death yet you and I know we will still die someday. And 
People will continue dying until the day when God abolishes the last enemy, which is death. And at that point, all believers will live eternally. No one will die. And all unbelievers will live eternally in condemnation. Nobody will die. Number eight, the eighth ramification of a rejected resurrection is that the Lord is not the Lord. Look at verses 27 and 28. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected that he is expected who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Lord is not just a, a phrase that we use, it's not just the title we give him, but he indeed is Lord. All will be subject to him. All will be placed in subjection to him. Right now we submit our lives to him, but there is a day where we will meet him face to face, where in worship and joy we will fall at his throne in subjection to him. And no matter how hard you may rebel against him, if you do not, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, if you don't do that before you die or before, the, before he returns, you will one day also bow at his throne, but not in joy and worship, but in pain and suffering, in subjection to the Lord before being cast into eternal darkness and suffering. And this is because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And we know this because he was raised from the dead. Had he not been raised, he would not be Lord. First Peter chapter 3, verse 22, says Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. He already is sitting in his rightful place, awaiting his own perfect timing in which all the end time events will start taking place, and ultimately we will all see him on that throne. These are pretty serious ramifications had the resurrection not occurred, or theological ramifications should you reject the reality of the resurrection. But here's the beauty of it. The resurrection is real. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So what does that mean? It means that our faith is not empty, but it is in fact redemptive. The gospel does not slander God, but represents him. All are not condemned, for salvation is found in the resurrected Savior. And Christians are not pathetic, but are the very embodiment of God's plan and work. Life is eternal. The end is known. Death does not reign forever. And the Lord, hallelujah, is the Lord. Because, my friends, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, is risen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you that you rose your Son from the dead. Not merely a man, but God, very God. Our Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise you for such a wonderful work and plan of salvation that does not end with the death for our sins, but in a risen Savior. Thank you for the powerful understanding of how significant the resurrection is. And may we know that we worship a risen Lord. We praise you for this. We thank you for this. And we pray in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.